Welcome to Globally Speaking, sponsored by RWS Moravia and Nimzi Insights. Are you ready to dive into the most critical issues impacting language and localization today? Globally Speaking is designed to educate, inform, and challenge everyone who is engaged in global communications. Your hosts for Globally Speaking are Renato Beninato and Michael Stevens. Learn more by visiting our website at www.globallyspeakingradio.com. And now, here are Michael and Renato. I'm Renato Beninato. And I'm Michael Stevens. Today on Globally Speaking Radio, uh, we're coming back to a topic that was one of the most popular topics we had. We talked about neuromachine translation in a three-part series back in episode 2021 and 22. And it's currently one of the topics that is most pressing when it comes to technology in the language space. Our guest today is working in this uh, environment at a very high level. And my favorite part of this interview is when we talk about neuromachine translation as it applies to real life. Michael met with our guest in Dublin, and um, here's his interview. I'm John Tinsley, the CEO and co-founder of Iconic Translation Machines. Iconic is a, an enterprise machine translation provider headquartered in Dublin, Ireland, uh, with offices in, in Spain and the UK. But obviously, as is the nature of the beast, we operate on a global level. John, you're one of our reoccurring guests. You joined us in the last three-part episode yeah. where we introduced the concept of uh, neural machine translation. It seemed it was much more on the hype curve at that point. It's been over a year now. Uh, since that happened. Tell us first a little bit for those who haven't listened to those episodes, both about Iconic and neural machine translation in general. Back then, neural was the new kid on the block and it had made that initial splash of hype. We were in high level uh, expectation management mode. Yes, it was really exciting from everyone's perspective, but it wasn't production ready. It worked at the core, but there were a lot of things that, that needed to be done before you could incorporate it into kind of production workflow. So we're really trying to manage everybody's expectations saying, yes, this is coming, but let's work on a few things. So trying to kind of be upbeat about it because it was so transformative, but also not trying to come across like being a damp squib and saying, you know, it's not as great as... Yeah, yeah. You're not the Luddite saying, no, no, we won't move forward. Somebody told me not too long ago that... Um, they were really interested in neural machine translation, but they heard me speak at a conference and decided not <laughs> to go for it. And they were then surprised to hear that we were working on it because I was so negative about it before. And I said, oh, maybe I should really change my tone a little bit because it is actually really, really exciting. And it's just a case of trying to find the balance there. What have you guys found out? What have you experienced that has made you more positive about the direction it's going? I think it would have been impossible to predict. And if you go back and listen to old episodes, you see that we didn't predict how fast a pace things would develop at. Back with statistical MT, we kind of hit a plateau in terms of, you know, how far we could go with it. It was Improvements were very incremental. So it was really a case of, OK, this is what we have. What can we do with it? And then all of a sudden, you know, neuro comes along. And, and in some cases, which is where the hype came from, it like, blew things out of the water. So you would do so much effort for such a small increment with statistical MT, and now all of a sudden we're getting like order of magnitude levels of improvement, and we're like, this is bizarre. And that hasn't really stopped to some extent. Blue scores are a thing that people look at. And, you know, if you're in research, if you're publishing a paper and you had half a blue point improvement, that was enough to like write an article about at a top tier conference and, and kind of 
draw attention and now we're still you know you try something new and you're getting like a seven eight nine point improvement and it's like wow the avenues of things to explore things to try are they're still opening up that's really exciting from a technology perspective from an r&d perspective and then obviously from the commercial potential what more can we do with that as opposed to saying this is what we have where can we fit it in now we're looking at new doors that are being opened, new opportunities where they weren't there before some of that has come from your work around the source that that there has been a, a focus on the quality and cleanup of the data one kind of characteristic of neural machine translation that has become clear is that it's a lot less robust when it comes to noise. Statistical machine translation, for all of its flaws, it was kind of robust. It would produce a reasonable translation for anything. You know, it would have a go. Whereas with neural MT, it, it knows what it knows. And if it sees something it doesn't know, it, it can be a bit unpredictable. And so it was, it was very much from a data perspective, there was a, a less is more um, when it comes to kind of quality data. So focusing on having, you know, less cleaner data than just reams and reams of data where there might be a lot of noise in there. It might be helpful for some of our listeners when we talk about that data. Mm-hmm. What makes up that data? What is it? Translation memories are a perfect example of like the ideal training data for machine translation. So what we need for machine translation is uh, examples of previous translations. Here's a sentence. Here's how it was translated in another language. And we learn from that. And so TMs are the embodiment of that. And you supplement that with glossaries, terminologies for specific domains, for specific industries. And that's training data. So if you're trying to do an online machine translation tool that is you know, consumer grade, can translate anything for anyone at any time, you're going to need serious amounts of data. We're talking you know, hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of, of words of training data. Whereas if you have a more narrow focus in a specific use case, a specific industry or a specific client, then we can get away with less, better data. What are some of the other things that folks in the space are talking about now, the, the advancements or different areas where they're excited or seeing opportunity? I mentioned that it's kind of opening up new avenues. So one thing we used to talk about in the company was predicting the likelihood of success for a machine translation project, depending on a number of the factors and the key factor being the language that you were looking at. So really, there were a, a small enough set of languages that MT could do well at and could do production ready. And then outside of that, you were struggling. I mean, just to, to give a few examples, you know, if you're dealing with your French, Spanish, Portuguese, German, Italian, they were kind of the much more doable languages. But I guess if you talk to anyone who tried machine translation a few years ago for Japanese or Korean or Arabic they or would, something like that. They would start to go cross-eyed. And yeah, and, and we saw a lot of big enterprise who had machine translations successfully deployed. It would be for seven or eight languages, and then they would use kind of traditional workflows for, for the rest. Now, everything is back on the table. So, for example, in the last year and a half, we've put engines into production for English into Hungarian, Finnish, Russian, Czech, Polish, Ukrainian, Serbian, like languages where if you asked me two and a half years ago, we would have said, no, probably that won't work very well. We recommend you do these alternatives. So that's probably the most exciting thing. Are you also exploring the non-English language pairs? Is there research being done in that yet? It doesn't really matter what the language pairs are. Once you have data to, to feed into it, the market will always drive what language combinations you need. So now the doors are open for, let's say, English to 
you know, Korean, which was one of the really, really hard languages before, or perhaps um, combinations that don't include English where there wasn't data before. The, the biggest question probably being asked on the, the research side of the industry at the moment is, okay, we know that the technology is probably good enough to work with these languages if we had the data, but we don't have enough data. How do we get around that problem? So the, the traditional, the low resource languages issue. And so that's where a lot of the research is being focused on, okay, what can we do with very little data? What can we do with no data? So it's like we call unsupervised machine learning. So supervised machine learning is where you learn from previous examples of something. Unsupervised is where you kind of iterate the learning from a starting point of not really having many examples of data to, to build on. It's interesting. And then you see LSPs getting involved, some of the larger ones with the more public engines working to create some of that data. It's just how much do we need to have before we can get a viable engine running in this particular language pair or from English into whatever it may be. So so to give you a a kind of a cool example of of, of how this is working, let's say you have a small amount of Georgian and there's only 3 million people in in Georgia and they only speak it there. So it's not a widely spoken language, so there's not a lot of data. So maybe you have a small amount of English Georgian data, but not really a lot. So you you can build a, a very small prototypical system, let's say. But we have a lot of English data. We use our small, probably not very good English to Georgian system to translate a lot of English data machine translated into Georgian. And then you use that, even though it's noisy, to train and see what more you can learn to reinforce what you know is good. Once you've reinforced a little bit, translate all of the English again with a slightly better system and go again and keep iterating like that. Um, And so that's kind of unsupervised learning or or supervised learning from a a very low starting point. And this is something that a lot of people are working on and and has the potential. We're we're doing it in the company now as well. And it's... uh, it's, it's promising, and it's another one of those things where you know, like my, my eyes are opening here. If a client said to us before, we don't really have any data to give you again, that was another factor where we might say, okay, this is a hard language, and you can't give us any data, yeah. probably can't do anything. Now it's a case of, okay, we can probably still try something here, and it's probably going to be more effective than anything you've seen before for this language. Per. Previously, you may have said, we can't do it at all, or you need to go and create this data. To give you an example that reflects what I said as well at, at the beginning about the kind of the pace of change, towards the middle of, of 2018, we decided to do a blog series on our website because we have a lot of scientists, PhDs in machine translation in our team. So we said, let's do like a, a six-part series on what's in vogue in machine translation. Yeah, and in the six parts, we'll cover it pretty well, sufficiently. Data be- cleaning, yeah. low-resource languages, domain adaptation, and you know that'll be a good primer. Well, like by the time we got to the end of the six weeks, there was something new. So we just published issue 26 this week, and, and we're already at the point in a seven, eight month period where we're revisiting topics that we covered a few months ago because there's already a, an update on them. And that applies to to this kind of notion of, of training when you have no, no data or low resources for a particular language. I think we've done three issues on that now because it's the, the updates keep happening. Somebody tries something new. And it's really promising and you compare it to the previous approach and it's improved upon it. It's really, really cutting edge. It sounds like a great spot for our listeners to be able to stay aware and read up on the latest that's happening. Where do they find it? So it's on our blog. It's called the Neural MT Weekly. Um, So I think if you go to iconictranslation.com slash blog, 
it's quite prominent there if you check any of our social media channels it's there so we have our team like i said they kind of write issues on a weekly basis we have some guest posts as well we have some cool guest posts coming up so basically what they do every week is they, they'll take a topic so let's say you know, unsupervised training they'll look at a range of different people in different universities or companies who've kind of been working on this topic and they'll write a summary post of here's what they did here's the impact of it here's what this might lead to and then move on to the next one. And, and sometimes we have some of the people who wrote those papers write a guest article on That's cool. And from what I've read on it, it is accessible. So you start reading an article and you're like, yeah, yeah, I get this. And then suddenly you are in a pretty challenging academic piece. Yeah. So it has both the, the levels. It's unavoidable. And so that's kind of the guidelines we have for the guys when are writing. And it's like, try and make the intro and outro at least kind of generally accessible but obviously it's it's hard to talk about detailed approaches to unsupervised learning for neural networks without giving some you gotta get into the weeds level of detail yeah. exactly so uh, yeah that's the balance we're, we're trying to strike probably one of the key questions you're getting asked from buyers of the services is it still too early for me to get into it or is now a good time to start testing and playing with some of these engines and seeing what happens what's your advice there it's 100% the right time. We were cautious at the beginning and we weren't kind of going straight gung-ho saying, right, we're going to do neural everything from now on. Um, but that's where we are now. So we don't build statistical empty engines. There are legacy ones that are still in production and I think that's the case for any sort of technology. If, if something's not broken, don't fix it with, with right. some users. And so everything we do is neural now and even like the evolution of neural, recurrent neural networks, convolutional neural networks, now it's attention-based, it's still evolving. So it is definitely the right time. Um, we're seeing new use cases. We're working in kind of a lot of industries where maybe a they were kind of slower to adopt this type of automation, this type of technology in the past due to concerns over quality and be kind of use cases that, that maybe we couldn't, weren't practical before and languages and things like that that are now kind of a lot more open. Yeah, I've been hearing different things in the industry, life science companies being heavily committed to yeah. seeing their content being translated through neural machine translation. And we're experiencing exactly the same because the, the pressures of multilingual content are on more industries. Tech, IT was where the kind of automotive were the traditional ones. But as, you know, pharmacovigilance, clinical trials are getting more complex and you're having to reach further uh, around the world to kind of get people on trials. The language issue is becoming a lot more challenging and life sciences companies used to kind of passed that issue off to wherever the trial was running on site but that had cost issues had speed issues time to market issues it had quality issues and so now they're seeing neural mt at the center of a workflow as an opportunity to transform to some extent how those operations are working and, and there was always like the concern in in life sciences that there are so many quality checks for some of the certifications there's even back translation if you have something you know, professionally certified, translated from, let's say, Chinese into English, you'll have somebody else professionally translate that from English back into Chinese as a, you know, an extra sanity check. Yeah. So what the technology will allow you to do is just get to those points faster. You know, those quality checks have to happen. You know how long they take, but can we get to starting them faster through automation of, of some of the translation process? And, and with the companies that are doing this, there's still some level of editing, yeah. involved with it There's, the human element is still there or are they going fully automated it depends it depends so so wow. that's what we're seeing so so yes there is the traditional workflow of 
a human in the loop and there's revision, there's editing, there's QA happening at the end of a machine translation process. But what we're seeing, as I've mentioned a couple of times about new avenues opening up, is what can we do with raw machine translation or, you know, or MT uh, as is? So what that requires is getting to a point where you trust the quality enough that it's not doing anything nefarious. So like to use the life sciences example, one area there is pharmacovigilance. So that's where, you know, pharmaceutical companies have to allow all consumers, users of their drugs, so be that an individual, be that a, a hospital, a doctor, to report any side effect they have with the drug. And they're coming in in all sorts of formats in all languages. And companies have to react to them within a certain short period of time to meet FDA requirements, regulatory requirements. That just creates a big backlog. Depending on the volume that's coming in, there's no way a human there's person no can way. assess. No, and so basically you say, okay, these go into the backlog. We'll take the fines that we get because we can't resolve them on time. But that's not sustainable because it's not going to go away. So that's something where we see a machine-only part, at least for the first part of, of getting it translated, getting things categorized before they're acted on. They can sort of flag those translations that may be... Uh, most likely something serious and then go back and check them yeah. with the human resource. And, and, and to give you another example of another industry that has a legal bent on it because it is the legal industry, litigation e-discovery is, is a big case where the opposition council will dump terabytes of digital data and say, right, go and find the smoking gun <laughs> yeah, in like there. Two days before they're going to exactly. trial or something. And, and so, you know, a lot of the law firms are used to doing this in English, so they'll have processes and workflows for doing searching and complex analytics, but only on English. And so they need to get something into English quickly so they can act on it. So again, their machine translation is the only option. The reason it doesn't have to be perfect is because you're establishing uh, a legal position on the basis of something. And so the fact that you're using MT is fully transparent. So you can go into the court and say to the judge, we are taking this position on the basis of a machine translation of this document into English. And that's legally defensible increasingly so courts are accepting the fact that okay that's that's a fair enough reason for you to take that position and so and, and that gives you time that buys you time that allows you then to have you know so you've filtered out a lot of the documents because they weren't relevant and you've established your position in time using the mt and then you can go back to the original workflow of having people put eyes on it and, and maybe having certified translations where you need them the other big use case that we're seeing for that machine translation only is in customer support. So time to resolution for an issue where you want to get as many first level support issues resolved without people if you can. So that's where knowledge databases on the website come from. You have them translated into multiple languages. But then even once the human is involved in the loop, if you're selling into you know 70 different countries and you have to maintain a, a multilingual support team, that can be onerous. So we have a couple of, of large IT clients who use MT in the middle of their ticketing system. They have an English-speaking customer support team who receive all tickets from customers in English because they've gone through MT and they respond in English and the customer sees it in their language. They're solving an additional 30-40% of their issues with that before you then have to engage a support who speaks the language of the customer as well. And that's, there's a massive cost implication there. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. Every phone call where you're talking to a real human being has a dollar figure and when you're able to reduce that that's significant yeah it's, it's massive and, and you'll see a lot of the technology providers in 
in the localization space are looking at that as a use case because everyone has customers, everyone needs to support them, everyone wants to have more customers in more places. So it's a problem that, that almost every company has. Yeah, that's fabulous. You gave us some really good use cases and uh, a good update. Anything else our listeners should be aware of that's happening right now in the space? I don't want to say no, because you know, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's so much good. happening. <laughs> if you think from from a commercial provider like our perspective, our interest is less on the pure research and more applied. Our guys are, are keeping a you know, close eye on what's happening and where and considering how we can apply that to our applications. So one of the big areas is around what we call domain adaptation. So if you think of the, the likes of the online translators like Google and Microsoft, they're really good. So, you know, sometimes when you hear people say, oh, man, I used Google Translate and it was rubbish. And we say, it's not rubbish. It's like really, really <laughs> high quality technology going on there. What their comments are maybe reflecting is that in trying to do a little bit of everything, you you, you have to give something up. And that's, you know, being very like extremely good at one thing and so that's what we try to focus on and a lot of research is trending towards how can we maybe have multiple different data types within our an engine so how can we have like a single engine that has training data from the legal area from the pharmaceutical area from it and do this kind of on the fly adaptation depending on the input that comes in so rather than having to have a, a single system for each different customer for each different domain that you work in how can we do this kind of on the fly adaptation and that's the intersection of research and kind of commercial deployment of mt how can we build upon what's already there anyone who's providing machine translation whether it be a provider like ourselves or an lsp they're up against what people can access freely online and so it's looking at how can we get advantages over that how can we adapt technology that we have more to an industry more to a particular client we're tweaking things a little bit more, making things, having kind of technology that at its foundation is more general, but then ultimately having that be something that's bespoke for a particular client and their use case. It's a way you describe your business, the bespoke. That's intentional on our side. The word that, that we used to use that, uh, that a lot of other providers use was custom, but now everything is custom. So you can customize Google Translate, you can customize Bing Translator, but I guess there are levels of customization. So dropping in a few Dictionary terms is customization. So, so how do you distinguish between dropping in a few terms versus taking your core technology and really, really adapting it for client A's very specific use case in the pharmacovigilance division of their life sciences company? And so that's what we describe as bespoke. So the constants are our technology that we have and the methodology that we have for adapting it and the team that we have and the variable that comes in there is the client and their use case and their data and so combining them is what we say produces a more bespoke solution for them though with a like i said a consistent foundation to allow that to, to kind of scale better as well yeah well that's great you've given our listeners a lot to think about and a really good perspective i can't wait till the next time we catch up yeah definitely let's do it in uh in 12 months time and see where we are then <laughs> sounds great well as you guys just heard john tinsley is uh, very knowledgeable about this space and shows us uh, the real status of a neuro machine translation how does it apply to you how does this change your world think about it and let us know what uh, you would like us to talk about next time we approach this subject for more Globally Speaking information, you can find us on our website, www.globallyspeakingradio.com, 
on Facebook, and you can follow us also on LinkedIn and Twitter. If you like this episode, please think of one friend who might enjoy it and encourage them to subscribe as well. Thank you for listening to Globally Speaking, sponsored by RWS Moravia and Nimzi Insights. You can subscribe to Globally Speaking on iTunes or any number of podcast portals. Check out our other episodes on globallyspeakingradio.com, where you can find transcripts from every show. We'd like to hear your comments, suggestions, and feedback. So please visit us online at www.globallyspeakingradio.com.